When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm so grateful that you'd invite me over for some time in the scriptures. I actually had an amazing experience recently. I was in San Diego speaking at a youth conference down there, and I got to bring my wife and two of my kids. Uh, they got to have some beach time while I was speaking to the youth. But one of the days of youth conference was spent at SeaWorld. And my, and my wife and two kids and I were, were walking, were waiting in line, an eternal line. It was, it was painfully long. But as you're kind of serpentine wrapping back and forth, I passed someone who looked at me, and then she just said, wait a minute, are, are you Brother Halverson? Uh, and, I, and I smiled and said, yes, I am. And she turned her, her smartphone over, and there I was uh, on, on the, the Unshaken uh, videos, and, and she just started to weep and, and just said how grateful she was for the time that we spend together in Scripture. It was so touching to me. She said she'd been in and out of the church through much of her life, but that the Scriptures had just begun to make such a difference in her. It was strengthening her. It was grounding her in the gospel. And, and we, we hugged and we took a picture together and it was just a sweet, sweet experience. Uh, I'm, I'm honored. I'm, I'm humbled by the privilege of being a part of, of the lives of so many of you. I wish I knew each one of you individually so we could hug and take a selfie together. Uh, it was funny because as the line kept on going and we, we parted some other strangers next to me, they were like, what? What was that? Uh, and I, I didn't know exactly how to explain it, but just said, well, we, we made a connection that we didn't know that we had. And they just said, that was so sweet, just to be able to see that uh, reunion, uh, strangers that were not strangers, but were actually friends. And, and I really do feel that for you. And I'm thankful that the Lord gives us the chance to, to connect over things that are so important. I felt that last week when we were studying Section 84. I know that was a, a, a near eternal video. That lesson was long. Next week, maybe just as long, perhaps even longer. I never know how long these things are going to go. But Section 88 is another one of those incredibly deep doctrinal lessons. And, and one of the longest sections in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And what it has in quantity, it matches in quality. So gear up for next week. In some ways, I'm very grateful that the Lord kind of gives us a breather this week. Uh, with 84 last week and 80, uh, 88 next week, today's material, 85, 6, and 7, are three very brief revelations. Now, they're power-packed. Don't let their diminutive size uh, trick you into thinking there's not much here. They are incredibly important doctrines. And to set the stage for them, I want you to consider how good you are at, at discerning things, at telling the difference. I remember in seminary years ago, I would put two different pieces of paper that were gray on opposite sides of the classroom and then ask, okay, is it the same color? And they'd say, well, yeah, of course. But then once we brought them right next to each other, you could tell they were a bit off. Uh, and so juxtaposing them and helping us see, okay, that these are not the same things after all. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures where there's two pictures side by side and, and your job is to figure out what's the difference between them. Yes, if you're good at those, then these revelations may come naturally to you. 
If not, well, we have some things to work on. Now, the, the most obvious is going to be section 86 as we're distinguishing wheat from tares. But the same kind of skill set for differentiation will, will be necessary for 85 and 87 as well. I remember another seminary object lesson where I asked for a bunch of volunteers. They came up and I said, okay, I'm going to give each of you a job to, to separate people in the classroom. Okay. So you, I want you to separate the, the boys from the girls. Okay. Then for you, I want you to separate the, the seniors and juniors from the, from the sophomores. We'll do upperclassmen versus lowerclassmen. Okay. Are we doing okay? And they're like, yeah, I can do this. Okay. You, I want you to distinguish, but, and you can't talk. Okay. This all has to be visual or, or discerning, uh, but I want you to separate the extroverts from the introverts, okay? Uh, and that they're like, Wah. and then actually I had a friend who said, oh, you can tell the difference between extroverts and introverts by, well, well is there eye contact? And then he said, it's interesting to be among engineers. His friend is an engineer. And he said, when they talk to you, every engineer seems to be introverted. Uh, and, and they just, they stare, they stare at the floor when they're talking. But the extroverted engineers will stare at your feet while they're talking to you. And the introverted engineers will stare at their feet while they're talking to you. So maybe there's some, some subtle clues here. Okay, well, good luck with that. Uh, you, I want you to distinguish between people who squeeze the toothpaste bottle and those who roll it up from below. Okay, And, and, and is it getting harder and harder? I mean, the, the ones on this end were like, well, I got an easy job compared to those guys. How on earth am I going to discern between that? I said, you, uh, last one, I want you to go around and I want you to discern between the good and the evil. Okay, good luck with it. And then I was like, oh, just kidding, kidding. I don't want any of you to do this. Everyone go back to your seat. But it was this interesting kind of gut check of if I did have to discern between, if I had to separate out some of those, those differences are obvious. Some of them are much more difficult to detect. And like I said, we're going to see the need for some of those differentiations in today's material. If you remember back in section 63, I believe, it said that there would come a day where there would be an entire separation of the righteous from the wicked. So we're going to need to be able to tell what side that we're on. Okay. Now, let's go to section 85. This one's interesting because uh, technically, is it a revelation? We would say yes. Joseph Smith did say within this that these words came from God. But the form they took originally was a letter. Now we'll see this most clearly in section 121, 22, and 23, which was part of Joseph Smith's letters written from Liberty Jail. In this case, section 85 was a, or is excerpts, parts of a letter that Joseph wrote to William W. Phelps. Now Joseph is in Kirtland. Uh, w, uh, William W. Phelps is in Independence, Missouri. Remember, he's part of the, the literary firm, the United Firm that's responsible for all the literary and mercantile things. He's got a, a, a literary gig. He's supposed to be publishing the, the Book of Commandments and so on down in, in Zion. But while he's working on the literary, Bishop Edward Partridge is working on the, the mercantile setting up the bishop's storehouse, uh, receiving consecrations, and, and giving out stewardships. And he's not exactly having an easy time of it. Now, a lot of this isn't his fault. We saw this earlier when, when the saints are first told Zion is going to be the ultimate gathering place, the center spot, point in, pin in the map, right? The temple's going to be there. And so all kinds of saints wanted it to become their address before it became their attitude. Remember all this? And so they were booking it down to Zion before they consecrated uh, and so we have all these people rushing in, kind of land grab, and want first in line. And so Bishop Partridge is having a, a really hard time. I mean, do we have enough land? Do we have enough uh, consecration coming in to give these stewardships going out? And Bishop Partridge himself seemed to be making some mistakes in all of this, which 
go figure, we're all human, right? If you remember when Joseph Smith had gone down, there had been some friction between him and Bishop Partridge, and Bishop Partridge had repented. Well, now there seems to be another round of friction. As uh, William Phelps has seen Edward Partridge and just kind of wondering, I, I don't know if he is doing this right. Again, when called to repentance, Bishop Partridge uh, repents in sackcloth and ashes. He was an incredibly humble man, right? An Israelite in whom there is no guile. No perfection either, but, w but when he made mistakes and was called out for them, he recognized that, that fallibility, that humanity, and repented. And was always forgiven. He died in full fellowship in the church. Amazing, amazing saint. Which, according to our definition, is simply a sinner who keeps on trying. Well, Bishop Partridge keeps on trying, and I'm grateful for that. But at this point, Phelps has just seen how things are going, and it's like, ah, I'm not sure if this is going according to the Lord's plan. Well, Joseph writes William Phelps a letter, and in it he says to his friend, I fancy to myself that you are saying or thinking something similar to these words. So here's Joseph discerning. You know, I just have had you on my mind, William, and I just picture you out, out there in Missouri praying, thinking, saying, just wondering some things. And here's what I imagine you saying. My God, great and mighty art thou. Therefore, show unto thy servant what shall become of those who are assaying to come up unto Zion in order to keep the commandments of God and yet receive not their inheritance by consecrations, by order of deed from the bishop, the man that God has appointed in a legal way, agreeably to the law given to organize and regulate the church and all the affairs of the same. I mean, Joseph really thought this through. I mean, is that what's on your mind, William? And indeed it was. Essentially, it's, it's the prayer. Heavenly Father, am I doing this right? Are we getting it right? I'm not sure if we are. So will you please show to thy servant, Thy servant Joseph, thy servant Edward, show to, to any of us, what is thy will? How can we do this better? I mean, the law of consecration was one of the hardest things the saints were asked to do. I would say plural marriage was much harder even than that. Those seem to be the two areas of life that are the most challenging, right? Finances and family life. Well, the Lord's going to test us in both of those to the extreme. Just help us, please. Do it better than we're doing it now. Help us get this thing right. Now, this revelation, part of the letter that Joseph sends to W.W. Phelps, is meant to help them get it right. And elsewhere in the letter, Joseph adds this to Brother Phelps. Brother William, in the love of God, having the most implicit confidence in you as a man of God, having obtained this confidence by a vision of heaven, therefore I will proceed to unfold to you some of the feelings of my heart and to answer the question. I love how personable Joseph Smith is here. William... I love you. I have confidence in you. God has helped me gain that confidence as he's helped me see your worthiness, your faithfulness. So let me answer the question that I really do believe is on your mind. And then we see the portion of the letter that now constitutes section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants. To me, it's a beautiful example of the synergy that happens between God and his servants. Whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same, right? If, if it's scripture, if it's the mind of the Lord, the will of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the power of God unto salvation. Well, here's Joseph writing a letter, but the Lord speaking through him to the church. How much is this Joseph? How much is the Lord? Uh, the, the borders bleed together, and that is a beautiful thing. I'm sure you've experienced that if you've given priesthood blessings or taught lessons or given uh, talks in church and just wonder, was that me? I, I guess so. I was the one speaking. I, I wrote out that talk or I prepared it, uh, but it was the Lord working through me. And we see that here. Now in verse 1, 
It is the duty of the Lord's clerk, whom he has appointed, to keep a history and a general church record of all things that transpire in Zion, and of all those who consecrate properties and receive inheritances legally from the bishop. So we're going to get to Bishop Partridge in a moment uh, and his responsibility to divvy out inheritances in Zion and so forth. But in order to make that possible, we need to have some records. We need to have information on our people consecrating. What kind of stewardship are they receiving? How diligent are they being in those stewardships so that they can meet their needs but also have a surplus to be able to contribute back to the Lord's storehouse? And, and I mean, we are a record-keeping people. We saw that from the very first day the church was organized, April 6, 1830. A record must be kept. And Oliver Cowdery helped with that record. John Whitmer was eventually called to succeed him and become the church historian. And so verse 1 particularly is for John Whitmer. You're the Lord's clerk. You're the church historian. And you need to keep a history. But not just kind of big picture church history kinds of things, like the book, the, the Saints volumes that are coming out. Amazing material, by the way. But also membership records financial records, contributions, and so on. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I remember yeah, when, when a bishopric is, is dissolved because a bishop is released, uh, his counselors immediately go with him, right? Uh, when he's released, they're released. But it's interesting that the executive secretary and the ward clerk are not released automatically. The first time that happened, I realized, oh, I guess we counselors are the expendable ones, okay, easily replaced. Whereas there's a certain amount of training uh, a certain institutional knowledge that comes with the, the secretary and especially the clerk uh, of just being able to help transition into a new bishopric. We're keeping all of these records uh, and we'll be able to help the next administration uh, take the reins. But look at verse 2. It's not just the financial transactions and things in Zion with the law of consecration. That's verse 1. But verse 2 also, what else do you need to keep a record of, John? Their manner of life, their faith and works, and also of the apostates who apostatize after receiving their inheritances. We saw that a few revelations ago. That what happens if somebody leaves the church? Well, when they came in and consecrated, it becomes the church's property. It's no longer theirs. Uh, but when the church gives them back a stewardship, it's no longer the church's property. Now it's theirs again. There's a deed, you know, title. There's individual property ownership. And so when somebody leaves the church, if they apostatize after they've received their inheritance, oh, well, we need to keep track of all those kinds of things as well. Now, this goes back to this discerning sort of thing, because not all apostasy is, is visible. And we'll see more of that as we go on. But the records then that John Whitmer is supposed to be taking, I want, to me it's curious, how, what form would those records take? Uh, I mean, the church doesn't keep records on us to that level, but do we? Do we keep a record of our lives? Do we record our life, our faith, our works? It's the small plates of Nephi versus the large plates of Nephi. And there's just kind of things I'm going through. But this one, this is my spiritual set. The hand of God in my life. Now that would be a true treasure to posterity. Wilfred Woodruff always comes to mind. He was one of the great journal keepers of this dispensation. To the point, I mean, it must have been a spiritual gift for him. Uh, and where much was given, much was required. He, I mean, he said that he, he couldn't fall asleep at night if he hadn't written down the events of the day. He was given an incredible memory, even for sermons that he'd listened to. And then he said, I, I couldn't sleep until I had committed it to you know, pen and paper or quill and ink. But to, to have on record these kinds of of details. Now verse 3 we see some of the reasons why this record needed to be kept. It is contrary to the will and commandment of God 
that those who receive not their inheritance by consecration, agreeable to the law which he has given, that he may tithe his people to prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning, should have their names enrolled with the people of God. Now that's a long sentence that kind of interrupts itself in the middle. So let's make some sense of it. At the beginning, it's contrary to the will and commandment of God that those who don't receive their inheritance by consecration, I jump to the end, should have their names enrolled with the people of God. Again, if we're talking John Whitmer, not just church historian, but church clerk and record keeper, membership records and the ins and the outs of finance and consecration and, and uh, stewardships and so forth, if they didn't do it in the right way, if they didn't consecrate on the Ohio end to be able to come and receive an inheritance or a stewardship on the Missouri end, then their names don't belong on the list with everyone else's. In fact, I love how it's put. Their names shouldn't be enrolled with the people of God. When we think of enrolled, I mean, you guys, you can picture a role, and so is your name on the role. But to be enrolled, to me, is an educational term. I, I enrolled in that class. And the class that they're enrolling in is Sainthood 101. In fact, it's more like Sainthood 505. This is an upper division <laughs> class. Okay? This, this is graduate school. Uh, are you able and willing to consecrate? Because nothing weans you off the world quite like self-sacrifice, of offering your all on the altar to God. We're going to see more of this as we get to section 87 and these incredible prophecies on war. Well, way back in section 38, if you didn't see that video, it's worth going back just to relearn that one revelation. It's where consecration first gets off the ground, and it's in the context of war and rumor of war. And, and hearts among people in your own nation that, that are turning against you, the enemy in secret chambers seeking to destroy. I mean, it's fascinating the way it's described. We'll get more of that when we get to section 87, like I said. But even at this point, to be in a situation where I'm trying to help you overcome the wicked world, the, I mean, the wars in foreign nations, the war that will someday come here to your own soil, beside the point, it, it's the war between good and evil the, the, the contrary pulls of light and darkness. That's what I'm trying to help you overcome. And consecration is meant to help you overcome the world. You're not so focused on what you own, since what you own largely ends up owning you. Now, like I said, that's a hard course. There's usually plenty of seats available for registration. So will you enroll in that course? Will you enroll yourself in Consecration 101, in Sacrifice 101, which is all, they're all prerequisites for Sainthood 101. Remember that great statement from the Lectures on Faith, that any church that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. Such a masterful statement. That in order to achieve life and salvation, what's it require? It requires faith. And how do you produce faith? Well, that requires spiritual power. Well, how do you muster that amount of spiritual power? You sacrifice. You give up. And in the process, you come to know that you, wow, I really do have faith. The proof is in the pudding. I have evidence because of things I have been willing to give up, knowing that this is an investment in the future. That's faith. Uh, a belief in things not yet seen, but an assurance, a, a hope that those things will yet come. That's why that great statement about sacrifice is in a set of lectures that's dedicated to the subject of faith.
The three elements that are required for faith. Number one, to know that God is. Number two, to know what God is like. But number three, to know that your life is in harmony with God. And how do I know that? By sacrificing. And so are you willing to enroll in the course? It's contrary to the will and commandment of God that if you don't, if you don't consecrate, if you don't sacrifice, then you're not enrolled in the course. I can't mark your attendance. <laughs> you're not anywhere on there. And what's it all for? That middle section, this is all agreeable to the law, we would say, of consecration. Here he uses the word tithing. Our version of the law of tithing, they're not going to learn for another few years. And so the term is more of a generic label to describe the, the economic side of, of contributing things to the kingdom of God. But what's it all for? To prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning. I mean, that's second coming prep. The day of vengeance and burning. Will you be purified by that fire or consumed by it? Will you be ready for the coming of Christ? Which side will you be on? The Lord's or the world's? Zion or Babylon? And how we use our, our temporal resources, where we spend our money, how we use our stuff, that, that's going to tell the Lord and ourselves a lot about which course we've been enrolled in. Zion 101, Babylon 101. Consecration, tithing, sacrifice. That all helps us navigate this dog-eat-dog -dog world, this survival of the fittest this, he who dies with the most toys wins. I saw that on a bumper sticker once. I thought, eh, that's not the game I'm playing. It truly does separate us. In fact, I've heard that the number one thing that separates uh, temple recommend holders from endowed non-temple recommend holders. Now, did you hear that one? So they're endowed. They have been through the temple already. They have made covenants, including covenants to sacrifice and to consecrate. And yet, if they don't have a current temple recommend, so they have, they have lost that level of, of worthiness at some point, the number one reason why is tithing. It's interesting. It's not, um, it's not moral lapses. Uh, it's not those other kind of grievous sins that we think of in terms of, oh, not temple worthy or temple ready. No, it's uh, a failure at some point. I used to consecrate. I no longer do. I used to pay a full tithing for whatever reason. I can no longer bring myself to do so. And as we saw back in section 64, what's tithing for? To prepare us for the day of vengeance and burning. So we called it fire insurance. But it's not just sign the check and, and give a contribution. It's what it does to us. It weans us off the world. That is a class we should all be enrolled in. Now verse 4, neither is there genealogy to be kept or to be had where it may be found on any of the records or history of the church. Now this isn't genealogy like we're thinking family history. We, yes, we want all of those records. Okay, We need to do the work for the dead. We have our work cut out for us in that one. This in terms of, of the, the names enrolled with the people of God. Their genealogy, their families. The, the, this is membership records. And if they're not consecrated, and if they're not sacrificing, if they're not enrolled in Sainthood 101, then, then the name isn't there. Their family name isn't there. Verse 5, their names shall not be found, neither the names of the fathers nor the names of the children written in the book of the law of God, saith the Lord of hosts. I mean, this is a family affair. Well, how did I learn tithing from my parents? And how are my children learning tithing? Hopefully from me and my wife. 
And I just wonder if I'm not the type that enrolls my name in Consecration 101. Is it because my parents haven't taught me? So no wonder that my father's names aren't listed on that, on that book of the law of God either. And if I'm not living it, then I have nothing to teach to my children. So no wonder their names are not written there either. There's something to be said for multi-generational faithfulness and the strength that comes from, from creating family traditions that include traditions of righteousness, traditions of sacrifice and of consecration. That's what enrolls us in these required courses. That's what gets our names on the book of the law of God. That's what allows us to be remembered by God because we remembered him. We put him first. We gave to him, we offered to him, and to the least of these, his brethren. It's amazing that this nameless widow in the New Testament is remembered because she contributed her might. Mary, at least we have her name, but she is remembered because she took this, this alabaster box of spikenard and sacrificed it to anoint Jesus before his burial. On the flip side, we remember the rich young ruler for his failure, his inability to be able to sell what he had and give to the poor. What he was holding on to had too strong of a hold on him, and he couldn't let it go. Those names, or at least those stories, are found in the books of Scripture we have before us. Will our names, and the names of, of the righteous who taught us, and the names of righteous posterity that we teach these truths to, Will that genealogy of righteousness, that family legacy of service and sacrifice, will that be written in the book of the law of God? I hope so. Now in verse 6, Yea, thus saith the still small voice. So this isn't just Joseph writing a letter. This is the Lord speaking through the Spirit, through his servant the prophet. Thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierceth all things, and oftentimes it maketh my bones to quake while it maketh manifest. I love Joseph's description of, of spiritual experience for him. It whispereth, but it whispers through things, this penetrating voice. Yes, it's, it's still and it's small, but it pierces. That was the Nephite's experience when the voice of God came from the heavens in 3 Nephi 11. That it wasn't strong, it wasn't loud, but it was piercing. They felt it to the core. Here, Joseph's bones quake as it makes itself manifest. I mean, this is Elijah's experience, which to me is so interesting because it comes right on the heels of his experience with the priests of Baal. Such a famous experience in, in Elijah's life, right? You, you remember the story. We got fire. Yes, we do. We got fire. How about you? And this great contest, and it's so shock and awe. And Elijah himself was kind of a shock and awe prophet to begin with. Now, I mean, he was in the, the face of the priests of Baal. I'm talking smack left and right. He's the patron saint of every smack talker ever since. And, and to see him mocking them and saying, oh, your God can't hear you louder. I mean, it's, it's in your face kind of material. Well, that was one chapter. The very next chapter, Elijah is off by himself. But the Lord passes by. And here's the description. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I mean, sound like the, my bones are quaking when God makes himself manifest? But then this realization. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. Now after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. It doesn't have to be thunder and lightning, Elijah. It's not the fire from heaven that comes down and consumes the sacrifice in this, this big competition between you and the priests of Baal. That, that was an obvious manifestation. How about the less obvious? We're talking discernment, right? Can you tell the difference? And are you open to a still, small voice that whispers, but whispers in a soul-piercing way? Well, Joseph is open to it. And he receives it. And now he's passing on that message to William W. Phelps. I mean, for whatever degree of Joseph we see in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, by the time you get to 6 and on to the rest of this revelation, the Lord is speaking. And here's his message. Verse 7. It shall come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth. And here's what he's going to do. To set in order the house of God, to arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints whose names are found, and the names of their fathers and of their children, enrolled in the book of the law of God. Now he's going to compare that person, that mighty and strong, in verse 7, to someone else in verse 8. And, and, He's hinting at Bishop Partridge when he talks in verse 8. We'll see him in a moment. So verse 7 should be seen through the lens of a Bishop Partridge that, that wasn't exactly succeeding in his calling. Partly due to his own failures, partly due to the failures of those that were streaming into Missouri unprepared, unconsecrating. We've got problems on both, on both sides. And who's going to set it right? Well, one who is mighty and strong. Now here's where verse 7 becomes dangerous. Uh, ever since it was written, really. It's been used by apostates in the church. I'll, I'll put it this way. A, a friend recently sent me a message just asking about a certain splinter group in the church that some of his family members have been pulled into. And it's a group that feels that the church, uh, as presently constituted, has, has gone astray. That the church and its leadership has, has fallen away from the, the type of celestial vision that Joseph Smith laid out for the church. I mean, to me, it's interesting, as one who studies uh, faith loss and so on, that the majority of people who leave the church leave because they believe too little, if I can put it that way. But there are those who leave because they believe too much. There's the unfaithful at one extreme, but there's the overzealous at the other. As I said to my friend, there are those who, who feel like they can run circles around the rest of the church, including the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. It's like, ah, oh, they're holding me back. They're slowing me down. And I could be so much faster on my own. And I said to my friend, those who want to run circles around the church, oh, please do. Please do. It will keep you close to the rest of us slowpokes. Uh, and you can cheer us on and help us get up to speed like other people did to inspire you to greater degrees of faithfulness. The danger comes when you sprint off on your own and leave the rest of the church behind. I mean, if you think about Moses and no one was a faster runner than he. He truly could run circles around the saints. But what does he do? He remains with them. The Lord's asking you to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, I'll be with you. In fact, of all the people, I mean, we saw that last week in section 84. 
He sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But when they weren't ready, he didn't sprint off without them. Oh, every, every man for himself. No, he stayed with the group. And rather than eat the meat that he was prepared for, he settled for the milk that they were able to digest and slowly and carefully. I mean, it's what we saw in section 78. You're little children, but I, the Lord, will lead you along. Jesus didn't show off to his doctrinal understanding. He didn't. It's like what Moroni says when the Lord spake to him. It says, he spake to me in plain humility. That's amazing to me. And so to see these splinter groups led by would-be prophets, whether or not they claim that title, there seems to be a certain pride on their part to say, oh, I'm the mighty and strong. Or perhaps it's, it's flattering words like we saw so often among the Antichrist of the Book of Mormon, saying to, the, to, the, to their would-be followers, you are the mighty and strong, so much better and, and more faithful than the run-of-the-mill pseudo-saint that can't keep pace with the rest of us. Now, there is something condescending about that sense of superiority that does not partake at all of the condescension of Christ who was willing to come down to our level when he could have sprinted away from the rest of the pack. No, he walked with us, if that's as fast as we were able to go. Like I said, this verse has been taken by apostates, uh, by, by would-be prophets that say the church is not doing it right. And, and the prophets have, have fallen down from their divine commission. So follow me, they'll say. I am mighty. I am strong. I mean, as early as I think like 1905, 1907, somewhere around, around there, the First Presidency sent a message to the saints calling out apostate groups. I mean, this has been around for a long time. And like I said, it's still happening today. Saying, beware of those that use section 85 verse 7 as their justification for some kind of prophetic mantle that ordained prophets and apostles have lost, so they claim, uh, and that God has called them instead. I mean, you remember that verse in section 42? I mean, this is the one that I always come back to. That as the Lord talks about those who are called to lead, He lets us know that we'll know that they're called to lead. This is 42.11. Again, I say unto you that it shall not be given to anyone to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority. And it is known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. We're going to know, okay? It'll be known to the church. They'll be regularly ordained. The Lord's house is a house of order. And so to have some, I don't know, some usurper, <laughs> some, some false prophet, some false Christ, the, the signs of the times include those, right? Deceiving the very elect, coming in to say, somebody has to set in order the house of God because prophets and apostles have, have fallen away. Well, there's been some falling away going on, uh, but it hasn't been prophets and apostles who've been doing it. I mean, see how seven grows out of what Joseph had been writing up to that point? The faithful versus the apostates? Those who are consecrating their all versus those who just want to claim an inheritance? What course are you enrolled in? Zion 101 or Babylon 101? Where are your names written? And the names of your ancestors and the names of your posterity, fathers and children, we're all in this together. 
But getting back to the specifics of verse 7, I think we need to read this on two different levels. Okay, A mortal level and an eternal immortal one. Or we could put it this way, on the level of Edward Partridge, the bishop, who isn't quite getting it right, but give him time, he'll figure it out. Or secondly, on the level of Jesus Christ himself. Because in a way, what sections what verse 7 is asking for is, Bishop Partridge, you've got to live up to your, to your calling. You've got to live into the power of your ordination, to borrow a phrase we learned earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. In other words, put the mantle on, the mantle of a bishop. Bear it well, because if you don't, someone else will have to. We saw that repeatedly already, that everyone's replaceable in the kingdom of God, including Bishop Partridge. Now, thankfully, he didn't have to be replaced. He repented. That's the better option of the two, right? Replace or repent. Yeah, I think I'll take repent and change. I want to live into this. I want to be the type of bishop who, with the power of discernment, will be able to arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints. I, that's, that's my responsibility. I have to be able to, to know the spiritual gifts that people have. Remember, diversities of operations was one of them. Can I have the, the gift of discernment sufficient as a bishop to know where are people's spiritual and temporal gifts? How much can I call upon them to consecrate? And what can I ask of them to do as far as their stewardship is concerned? I mean, it was a huge order that God was asking of, of Bishop Partridge. And where much was given, as far as the calling was concerned, much was required of him, of living into it. Now, what was it going to take for a man like Bishop Partridge to be able to do that? I mean, if you work your way backwards through verse 7, it's interesting. On the most immediate level, it was, you've got to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints. That's your job. You've got to divvy up the land. Okay, Go back a phrase. You've got to set in order... The house of God. Wow, that's a tall order. And how on earth would I possibly do that? Well, how on earth? No, it's how in heaven. Because uh, it's heavenly gifts and divine direction that will be required of you. It will require a scepter of power, which we'll see in section 121, comes when we fully live Christ-like attributes and try to magnify our responsibilities in the priesthood. The powers of the priesthood have to be connected to the powers of heaven. So there's the scepter of power in your hand. Clothed with light for a covering. There's that white raiment we saw on those 24 elders surrounding the throne of God in the book of Revelation, right? DNC 77. Are you clothed with that so that you can truly see? See people's gifts and talents. See people's wants and needs. Are you clothed with light for a covering? Your mouth, when you open it, do eternal words come out, or is it just you chewing the fat, Bishop Partridge? Remember section 68. This is when it's real scripture. It's because a, a man of God or a woman of God has been em, empowered by the Spirit of God. That's how your words become eternal words. That's how a letter from Joseph Smith becomes a revelation from God, with bones quaking and spirit piercing all the way through. To do that, your bowels must be a fountain of truth. Bowels, we think guts. Uh, ancient Israelites would have thought heart. Okay, Your bowels, the seat of emotion, of, of feeling. And to have bowels filled with truth to the point that that's all that comes out of them. A fountain of truth. Uh, springing up unto everlasting life, as Jesus said to the woman at the well.
Now by now, I can picture Bishop Partry going, um, white flag, um, there's no way I'll ever qualify for that. And, and I can't blame him for feeling that way. Certain callings, and in a way, every calling should feel this way, just overwhelming enough for, to us to realize that we, there's no way we can fulfill it, let alone magnify it, on the basis of the natural man or woman alone. That we, will, that we absolutely require divine help. And that, to me, is what verse 7 really is suggesting. Because if Bishop Partridge reads verse 7 and goes, uh, I don't see myself there anywhere, I think the Lord is saying, good. I choose the weak and the simple for, for a reason. That if they will recognize their weakness and their simplicity, if they'll see just how bare the arm of flesh happens to be, then hopefully they'll turn to me because there's plenty of strength on my arm. So if your weakness convinces you to rely upon my strength, then all the better. That's why I prefer the weak and the simple. They know they can't do it. But Bishop Partridge, yes, you were so successful in your business affairs. And so now that you have a business-related calling, I mean, this was Clayton Christensen's challenge, right? When he said that uh, he was called into a bishopric and didn't really feel the Spirit the way he thought that he would. And then he realized, it's because I'm not relying upon the Spirit. I'm an administrator in my ward. And I teach at the Harvard Business School. I've got a PhD. I, I, administering things is what I can do in my sleep. And so I've been relying too much on my own strength to be able to perform the Lord's work. That, that's where I'm going wrong. And I wonder if that's the case with Bishop Partridge. And so I wonder, in, in this case, if the Lord is saying to Bishop Partridge, do you understand the type of person that is going to be required to perform these kinds of things? And him going, whoa, this is way more than, than what I'm capable of on my own. And the Lord's like, exactly. You're starting to get it now. For you to do my work, you're going to need to become a lot more like me. So humble yourself. Repent of your, of your iniquity or of your obstinance of your, of, or of your, your self-sufficiency. Thinking you can do this on your own or in your way instead of in my way. Because ultimately, who's the only person who, who verse 7 truly describes? It's Jesus Christ. He is the one. Let's change. If I could change anything in verse 7, it would just be to capitalize the O in one. To, to distinguish. No, this is not talking about some would-be prophet. This is not somebody coming in like, oh, I'll, I'll fix things. He'll warn us about that in verse 8. Hold on for it just a moment. But the one, capital O, who is truly mighty and strong. Might and strength personified is Jesus Christ. The scepter of power in his hand, that's the, the hand that was able to take the book with the seven seals and perform God's saving work throughout the world's history. Clothed with light for a covering, the light of Christ. That, those are our synonyms from section 84. Light and truth and spirit, that's all Jesus Christ. His mouth uttering words eternal words? Why else envision did John see Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth? Eternal words, quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And the Savior's bowels? He said it before, my bowels are filled with mercy, with compassion. Here they are filled with truth. 
No one will fully set in order the house of God other than Jesus himself. To begin his mortal ministry, to near the end of his mortal ministry, what did he do? He set in order the house of God. He cleansed the temple. And that's exactly what he will ultimately do to his kingdom. And arranging by lot the inheritances of the saints. Oh, Bishop Partridge, the earthly inheritances are so temporary compared to the eternal inheritances that only I can grant to the faithful, that only I can discern who, who is worthy to receive them. You see who verse 7 is really referring to? In a way, he's, he's chastening Edward Partridge for not being as Christ-like as he needs to be to fulfill this calling. In a way, he's saying, Edward, I, Bishop, my servant, I need you to, to live up to the mantle. I need it to fit upon your shoulders. So please broaden them. Become more like me. Because if you don't, someone else will have to. And if they follow suit, then they're going to eventually be replaced and replaced and replaced because no one is quite up to specs when those are the specifications. The best hope you have is to become as truly Christ-like as you possibly can with his help. Because ultimately, the only one that that verse describes is Jesus himself. Which also suggests that at the end of the day, who is it that's going to do all of these things ultimately? Immediately, it's, it's got to be Bishop Partridge. Please live, live into this calling. But ultimately, it is Jesus. It's only Jesus. He's the one that will do this. This reminds me of, a, to me, the most sacred experience I had in the Holy Land. And that five months was filled with sacred experiences. I loved going to the Garden of Gethsemane or to the, the Garden Tomb. I, I loved walking the, around the Sea of Galilee. Just being where Jesus was and seeing what he, remembering what he did to make the Holy Land holy was life-changing for me. But the most sacred experience I had in my entire five months wasn't at any of those ancient holy sites. It was in my dorm room at the Jerusalem Center with my scriptures opened, which was such a blessing because I realized I can't take any of these places with me and I may never be able to travel back to Israel. I hope someday I will. But my scriptures are very portable. And the source of the most powerful spiritual experience I, I had in the Holy Land, I can still have here with my scriptures before me. I happen to be studying Ezekiel 34. I didn't expect much to come of it, but I was reading my Old Testament, and there in my little dorm room, I had Ezekiel 34 open. And in it, the Lord chastens the shepherds of Israel. It's kind of what, well, not kind of, it's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's chastening his servant, Edward Partridge. And in Ezekiel 34, the Lord tells those shepherds, because you've neglected the flock, because you've been doing things your way instead of my way, that this was more about your self-aggrandizement, you're feeding on the flocks instead of feeding them. Because of that, I will replace you, you poor shepherds, you bad shepherds, with the good shepherd, the ultimate good shepherd, even himself. Now, what made that experience so powerful for me and it's not one that I can recreate on my own. But more than any other time in scripture study, I felt, heard probably isn't literal, but I don't know if there's a better term. I, it was the Lord's voice 
I usually read slowly, slowly enough that I can kind of hear myself saying the words. I've never been a speed reader. I, I can't skim. I just have to hear it. And it's always my voice in my head as I'm reading scripture to myself silently. But that time in Ezekiel 34, it was the Lord's voice. And I felt it so deeply as the Lord chastened servants that were not enough like him. And as he said, fine, then get out of my way because those are my sheep. And they deserve to hear my voice and to feel my love. I'm going to do this myself if you won't do it in my way for me. I mean, the entire chapter is incredible. I spent hours in that one chapter. I just didn't want us to let the Lord's voice dissipate. But two verses, if I could reduce it just to these two, Ezekiel 34, 10 and 11. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, are you starting to hear the first person pronouns? How personal the Lord is here. I and me and my. Keep reading. I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock since they're not doing it anyway. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore. That's what they've been doing in the meantime. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be meat for them. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. It was the personal nature of those words that brought the personal sound of his voice. I, even I, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the mighty and strong. I have the scepter of power and the covering of light. I have the mouth filled with eternal words and the bowels filled with truth. If you won't walk in my way, then can you at least get out of my way so I can do it myself? It's amazing to me that the Lord wants to be personally involved and would, be, would do such a better job than you or I could. But why does he step aside and make room for us to, to mess up his kingdom, for lack of a better word? because he wants us to grow up in him. That was Jesus' words to John the Baptist. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, you and me. And if it can't be us, it'll have to be me. It can never be you on your own. Your arm of flesh will be forever insufficient. So come unto me, become like me, serve in my way because I'm trying to turn sheep into shepherds. It's not just about running the kingdom right. Uh, yes, I could do that myself, but turning sheep into shepherds is a different story. You've got to become more like me. I will lead you along. I am able to make you holy. I, even I, will do it. Now take all of that and compare it to verse 8. And without using Bishop Partridge's name, he's hinting at him. And he's hinting at, at splinter group leaders in our church today. Uh, he's hinting at saints whose names are not enrolled with the people of God. Instead of Servant 101, they're, they're trying for Master 101, which isn't part of the Lord's curriculum. 
Look at verse 8. While that man, the counterfeit counterpart of the one mighty and strong, that man who was called of God and appointed, that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God, shall fall by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. Now, strong language there at the end. But go back to what he, how he describes them. Yes, you were called. Yes, you were appointed. You had all the, I had all the hope in you in the world. It's what I called you for. But you set forth your hand to steady the ark. And, and that's where things went wrong. Now, what the Lord is hoping we remember here is the story from the Old Testament about Uzzah. Now, this comes in the days of King David. Uh, the ark is being transported. Uh, it's on some kind of a cart that's being carried by oxen. And as the oxen are, are, are in, in route, they stumble. And as the oxen stumble, the, the, the cart jostles, and the ark of the covenant kind of, I don't know how close it was to tipping, but, but Uzzah, probably thinking he was doing God a favor, sticks his hand out to make sure that the ark doesn't fall, because he's assuming that it's about to. And he's immediately struck down by the shaft of lightning, as it's described here. Now talk about an object lesson. Now, this is, this is a hard one to swallow. A lot of things in the Old Testament seem to be. Prepare ourselves for next year, right? But what's interesting about this story is, it ever since, it's become this, this symbol of, of ark steadying, of thinking that the kingdom is off track, or that God's not really in the Ark of the Covenant anymore, and it's tumbling that the church isn't going in the direction that it should be. And I need to fix it. And, and hence we become ark steadiers. Even Eli Maxwell once described an earlier version of himself as an ark steadier because he was frustrated that the bishop wasn't moving faster uh, in his behalf to move forward in the next stage of life after the war uh, with missions and callings and so on. And, and the bishop said to him later, you just got home from World War II. I felt like your family needed you more. And, and it was one of those moments for Elder Maxwell that was like, oh, who did I think I was? That I thought I was, that the bishop was uninformed or wasn't doing the, the, the work the way he should, that I thought he should have. Now, are bishops perfect? Of course not. Uh, are prophets fallible? Of course they are, and they admit that. But they are called of God and appointed to do his work in his way. And sometimes the rest of us, if we think, ah, oh, they don't know what they're doing, that we try to steady the ark. We assume it's about to tip over. And that without us, I was the right person at the right time, and I happened to be there to save the church. I, ah, maybe I'm mighty and strong after all. Careful. That's not your role. That's not your place. In fact, there are those who still wrestle with this, where it's like, ah, but Uzzah didn't, Ooh, this seems really harsh. I don't think Uzzah was trying to usurp the power of God. He wasn't trying to take David's spot. He just probably literally thought, oh, this is going to tip, and I, I can't afford to, any, to let anything happen to the, the precious ark of God. Man, this, this seems pretty rough. Now back up for just a second. I think there is another lesson waiting in the wings here. And, and that's putting the, the, the story in context. Because my question to not just Uzzah, but to David and to anybody else along the, along the path is, what was the Ark of the Covenant doing on a cart being carried by oxen? That's not how it was supposed to be done. 
when the when the house of Israel was traveling towards the promised land from their Egyptian bondage and they had created the tabernacle and all these tabernacle implements, including the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, there were rings on the corners and there were staves, staves that were stuck through them. Why? So that Levites could carry the Ark of the Covenant upon their shoulders. It was part of the burden that they bore. If you remember when Joshua entered the promised land and they were crossing the Jordan River, how did they cross it? In an echo of crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Nobody got their feet wet except the Levites who were bearing the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as they entered the water, carrying that symbolic presence of God with them, that's when the, the water began piling up and, and the river parted for them. The Ark of the Covenant was meant to be borne on the backs of those whom God had called to that service. This was not cargo meant to be carried in a wagon by a, a, a teamster and some oxen. Now, I'll admit, it's tempting. It seems a little easier that way. I mean, oxen are a lot stronger than, than human beings are. I mean, those, that staff, I mean, it weighs on the shoulder, right? But that's my, that's my point. And that's my question to David and his people. Why weren't you carrying it? Because I think the problem was not that you, you steadied it when the oxen stumbled. It's that you stumbled first in not carrying that responsibility upon your own shoulders. You see, even David himself realized what they'd done wrong. And he said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. You get it? The priests were supposed to be carrying it all along. And that, to me, has really clarified what the problem here is. Again, we're trying to distinguish things, right? Wheat from tares and, and consecrators from non-consecrators. Those in the book of the law of God versus those that aren't in it. The faithful, apostates, it's, it's all here. Well, in this case, we're separating one mighty and strong compared to one who is steadying the ark. And in reality, the difference is there are those who steady the ark and those who bear it. Those who put their shoulder to the wheel, as opposed to those that, oh, let the oxen do it. It's, it's a little easier on me. I've always been fascinated uh, by the story in 1 Nephi 17, when Nephi is building the ship. And at the beginning, he gets no help from Laman and Lemuel. All he gets from them is an earful of murmuring and complaint, of doubt, uh, of you're never gonna be able to do this, Nephi, why even try? But that to me is the irony. They were only complaining about Nephi's boat when they weren't helping him build it. That's the difference. Once they were shocked into submission, once they humbled themselves and actually began working alongside Nephi on this impossible task, no more complaints from them. I mean, honestly, it was probably the longest period with, without murmuring we see from Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon. And it's because they, they rolled up their sleeves and they got at it. They helped. 
they put their shoulder to the wheel and bore up the responsibility that was given them. I've seen that in my own experience, that typically people who steady arcs were never burying them to begin with. That those that were, are complaining about how the church is being run are not working to serve in the church themselves. I don't want to overgeneralize with that, but I think there's some truth to that principle. There's something about serving in our calling that gives us greater patience with people serving in theirs. That we, we see imperfect bishops from Bishop Partridge on down to, to, to our day. But we see them striving. And we're striving right alongside them. We're all bearing up our corner of the, of the covenant. Doing the best we can despite our weakness and, and inability to follow the example of him who is mighty and strong. That's what this is all about. Now in verse 9, All they who are not found written in the book of remembrance shall find none inheritance in that day, but they shall be cut asunder, and their portion shall be appointed from among unbelievers, where are wailing and gnashing of teeth. Earlier it was called the book of the law of God. Here it's called the book of remembrance. I mean, you, John Whitmer, you're supposed to be remembering things and helping the church remember also. Keep records. Write down life and faith and works and be, keep track of apostates and so on. Those who have given their all in consecration, who will receive their all in inheritance. That's something worth filling a book of remembrance with. And then Joseph reiterates in verse 10, These things I say not of myself. Therefore, as the Lord speaketh, he will also fulfill. Again, in this, as if you've been pondering the center of gravity of where's Joseph and where's the Lord in this, in this revelation. I mean, it was a letter to begin with, after all. But as he said in 6, this is coming from the still small voice. These are his words. In verse 7, I, the Lord God. He's speaking in the first person there. Verse 10, Joseph, back to him, I say not these things of myself. This is the Lord speaking. He's, he's responsible. He's the mighty and strong. And then 11, and they who are of the high priesthood, whose names are not found written in the book of the law, or that are found to have apostatized or to have been cut off from the church, as well as the lesser priesthood or the members, in that day shall not find an inheritance among the saints of the Most High. We're trying to discern to tell the difference between the faithful and the faithless, between those in the book of remembrance compared to those who have forgotten the Lord their God. Consecration, sacrifice, service are such distinguishing features. And then he ends, verse 12, Therefore it shall be done unto them, those who have been cut off, namely those who have cut themselves off, as unto the children of the priest, as will be found recorded in the second chapter and 61st and 2nd verses of Ezra. Now, Ezra chapter 2 is not exactly one of those chapters that just you know, comes to mind easily and just rolls off the tongue, okay? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's kind of buried in the depths of the Old Testament. I'm really impressed, by the way, that Joseph Smith has come to learn the Bible so well by this point. If you remember the experience he had when he was translating the Book of Mormon, and he asked Emma, this is early on, uh, Emma is his scribe at the time, and he's translating the story of Nephi going in to get the brass plates, and he's waiting by the wall. And Joseph's like, wait a minute, was, was there a wall in Jerusalem? 
uh, he was afraid that he was mistranslating something because he had no idea there was a wall around Jerusalem. I mean, there was none around Palmyra, right? Uh, and, and Emma was like, well, duh, honey. Of course there's a wall around Jerusalem. Uh, if you've read the Old Testament, especially books like Ezra and Nehemiah, the need to rebuild the wall after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, you know that Jerusalem had a wall. Well, that, at that stage of Joseph's um, prophetic ministry, he didn't know the Bible that well. Mother Smith had said he was the, my deepest thinker among the children, but he was not given to book study. In some ways, it's a miracle he stumbled across James 1.5, right? It's not like he was laboriously going through every verse. And it's like, here it is, almost at the end of the book, a thousand pages in, thanks a lot. No, it's, he didn't know the Bible as well as he needed to. And so part of the project of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible was to master the truths that God had already revealed to prior prophets. And I love the fact that here, he's like, oh yeah, this reminds me of second, the second chapter of Ezra. It's like, kudos to you, Joseph. <laughs> you, you've learned your stuff well. Well, in that story, as the Israelites are returning from Babylonian captivity, allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but also allowed to rebuild their temple, well, the temple, that's the responsibility of, of the Levites, people that are supposed to be burying the Ark of the Covenant, right? We don't farm it out to animals, okay? This is not delegatable. Well, as they were coming back, you, you had to prove through your genealogy. We saw that word back in verse 4. You had to prove with fathers and children. We saw them brought up in this revelation as well, that you were a Levite, that you did have priestly authority so that you could function in these roles. But you were called to bear the ark, not just there to, to try to steady it in case somebody slipped. And in the two verses that Joseph refers to here, there was a group of Levites, at least they claimed to be Levites, but they couldn't prove it. There was no record kept. The duty of the Lord's clerk, right? Well, as a result, their names were not included on the roll. They weren't enrolled with the priesthood holding people of God. Specifically, the verse says, these sought their register, sounds like enrollment, among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. Yes, the ancient Israelites took their genealogy seriously, their tribal lineage, their tribal inheritance. Here, Bishop Partridge, the Lord is still taking all of that seriously as well. So you need to be taking it seriously. We all do. In fact, by the time Joseph finishes this revelation, remember he's taken the, the pen back, the center of gravity is shifted back to him. He then concludes the W.W. Phelps saying, now brother William, if what I have said is true, and Joseph knew that it was, I mean the spirit was making his bones to quake, it was making these truths manifest, okay? But, but I love how just gentle, I'll let you judge of this. I want you to learn discernment too, Brother Phelps. But if what I have said is true, how careful men ought to be what they do in the last days, lest they are cut short of their expectations. I mean, I imagine Bishop Partridge had great expectations of how things were going to turn out in Zion, but, but not doing it his way. It would have to be the Lord's way. So be careful to do what you ought to do in the last days. Joseph goes on in, in, as he finishes the letter. Lest they are cut short of their expectations, and they that think they stand should fall, because they keep not the Lord's commandments. Whilst you, so now he's shifting back to W.W. W. Phelps, 
whilst you who do the will of the Lord and keep his commandments have need to rejoice with unspeakable joy, for such shall be exalted very high and shall be lifted up in triumph above all the kingdoms of this world. What a beautiful ending to that letter. Brother Phelps, you're doing well. You have reason to rejoice. You're keeping the Lord's commandments. Those that are not will fall short of not just God's expectations for them, but their expectations for themselves. Bishop Partridge, you can do better. I know that you will. I have faith in you. And that faith was well-founded. Bishop Partridge did turn things around. He was never as mighty and strong as Jesus would be. But the Lord trusted him. And he did his very best to, to live up to that trust. To be careful to do what the Lord had asked of them. I pray that's the case for each of us. Now as we shift to section 86, this need for discernment becomes all the more clear. We saw a lot of it hinted at in section 85, but 86, it's right there in front of you. Wheat and tares, which one are you? Now the context of the revelation is Joseph is back to work on the Joseph Smith translation, the, the inspired version of the scriptures. Now, what's interesting is here he had already been through the text. He never, I mean, up to his dying day, he never felt completely finished with it, There's, which should tell us something. We're never finished with our scripture study. But what I love about section 86, if you see in the section heading, is this revelation about, it was, it's, he's studying the parable of the wheat and tares from the New Testament. Jesus taught it to his apostles. It's repeated in several of the, of the Gospels. And Joseph had already been through the New Testament with the JST, but now he is reviewing and editing the manuscript. And I love that. that the fact that he doesn't feel done having gone through it once. There is something about scripture study that helps us see kind of layers of truth and light just embedded in the text so that what you see, you'll never get it all the first time. To me, in fact, I sometimes worry that when my students look at my scriptures and they're like, what the? And everything's covered and marked and highlighted and everything. They're like, I'll never get there. And I just say, I wish you could see this in, in terms of a time-lapse photography or even kind of layers. I used to do this sometimes uh, back in the old days when we used overhead projectors. And I would make a bunch of copies of the same page of scripture. And I'd mark one thing in one verse on one of them. And then I'd have another uh, overhead transparency of the same page, and I'd mark something else. And then another one, and I'd, I'd mark this, and then a fourth, this word was circled. And in a fifth, I'd write this insight in the margin. And a sixth, I'd connect this thought down to this one. And on a seventh and eighth and tenth and twentieth, you get the idea? Now, when you stack them all together and lay them down on the, on the overhead, then it looks like one be, oh, wow, look at all this stuff that he learned from his scripture study. But, but when you lay them down one by one, you get the sense of passage of time and line upon line, precept upon precept, insight by insight as you review and edit. And no, we don't edit scripture. We'll let the prophet Joseph do that. But I love the fact he didn't get this insight the first time. During medieval times, Alchemy was something that people dreamed of being able to figure out because they wanted to turn lead into gold. Well, good luck with that. We don't believe in alchemy, but I do believe in the, the motto that they often used for their work, unsuccessful as it was. In Latin, they would say, Lege, 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 labore, ora et relege. 
I don't, I don't speak Latin, so forgive my accent there if it was off. But what, they, what we would say in English is read, 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 work, pray, and reread. I don't know of a better motto of not changing lead to gold, but changing truth written in Scripture to truth written upon the, the fleshy tables of our heart. You want additional insight? Then read and read and read and work at it and pray about it and then reread, go back to the text. And I love that we have a revelation that did not come the first time. My uncle once said to me, the scriptures are a lot like the loaves and the fishes, a finite amount of material, but with an infinite need that it can meet as you couple the needs of your students with the blessings of heaven then what was five loaves and two fishes? Well, five verses and two chapters is multiplied to meet every need. But careful, don't let any of the leftovers go to waste. Gather it. And in fact, there's 12 basketfuls, which is important because guess what? They'll be hungry again tomorrow. No matter how much you see today as your loaves and fishes are multiplied and the eyes of your understanding are opened, come back tomorrow. There's still more food to feast upon. Bread of life that should never go to waste. Well, the revelation begins. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, concerning the parable of the wheat and of the tares. Verse 2, Behold, verily I say, the field was the world, and the apostles were the sowers of the seed. You see, in the original parable, as recorded by Matthew, for example, there's this beautiful wheat field. Everything's great. But then the, the servants in the field fall asleep, and then the enemy comes sneaking in and plants weeds, tares that grow up right alongside the wheat. And when the servants wake up and they look at it and they see it, they're like, wait, what happened? I swear that the field was in good condition when we fell asleep last night. And the Lord's trying to help them make sense of, of the kingdom. This is one of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Well, here the Lord's giving them a better explanation of that with one twist that's going to be absolutely essential for us to understand. Verse 2, he's explaining. So the field was the world. The apostles were the sowers of the seed, planting truths that then grew up. But then verse 3, after they have fallen asleep. Now sleep in the New Testament especially is, is compared to death often. So think of the death of the apostles and what begins to happen. After they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, and then he starts listing some, some synonyms for that, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, that maketh all nations to drink of her cup, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan, sitteth to reign. Behold, he soweth the tares. Wherefore, the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. Now, in verse 3, we see that the Lord is teaching history and not just theology in that parable. I mean, on the personal level, you could say, oh, yeah, I mean, I've got good habits, but then bad habits start creeping up. And I'm, the adversary is, is planting weakness within me or, or temptation and sin. Well, that's, that's true. That's fine. So if that's what you get from the parable of the wheat and tares, well, go for it. But historically speaking, we are seeing apostasy unfold that the apostles were sent forth by Jesus to teach the word, to plant the seed, which they did, and it grew up. But at, when the apostles fall asleep, after the death of that kind of first generation of church leaders, what begins to happen? Satan has always been good at trying to nip good things in the bud. 
If you remember the other, uh, the first parable of the kingdom in Matthew 13, this is the second, but the first one is the parable of the sower. And there's seeds going and some of it's falling on, on the wayside and some among stony ground and some among thorns and some in good soil. Well, even the good soil, Satan's not done with you. He's always going to try to get you back to wayside kind of conditions where nothing good is growing at all. So even in good soil, here's where parable one shifts to parable two, the enemy will still come and try to plant tares. It's this kind of uh, eternal tug of war between the adversary and the Lord as far as what's happening on the field of the world. And just as, as Satan prefers the wayside because nothing grows there at all, the Lord can look at wayside and go, oh, I see potential there. We just need to till the soil break up that hard crust on the top. Get, now we're in stony ground. Well, then now let's gather out the, the stones so there's actually some soil to work with. Oh, and well, there's still some other things growing there. Well, then let's weed, let's weed the garden and clear it out. So ways, every time God sees way, wayside, he sees in vision good ground. It's just a matter of getting us there. But the reverse is also true. Every time the adversary sees good ground, he's like, mm, how do I reverse the process and get it back to my end of the soil spectrum? See, these aren't just four different cubby holes and four different types of people. It's a spectrum of soils with the adversary tugging in his direction and the Lord inviting and enticing us to move in his. And so when the adversary sees good ground, he thinks, what's my next step to move it back towards his extreme? Weeds. The enemy will go in at night and plant tares. The tares then choke the wheat. And while it still may be alive, it's not bearing the kind of fruit it was supposed to. Because the strength of the soil is going in other directions. Sounds a lot like what consecration is trying to cure us of if we'll simply enroll in Sainthood 101, right? Well, in this case, the tares choke the wheat. They drive the church into the wilderness. Ah, now we're back to Revelation 12, right? And the woman who's in labor trying to bring forth the kingdom of God is, is carried off on eagle's wings to be preserved in the wilderness so that eventually, rather than having her child devoured by the dragon, she'll be able to come forth again clear as the sun, fair as the moon, terrible as an army with banners, this, this church, this woman coming forth out of the wilderness to, bear, to raise her son. That's the restoration of the church. We saw that back in section 5 and section 10. This is what the Lord is trying to do. And it's just interesting for Joseph and his fellow saints at that time period to realize, whoa, we're living in the aftermath of the parable of the wheat and tares. The ancient apostles fell asleep. There will yet be modern apostles fully awake to help raise this child, but the woman is coming out of the wilderness. The church was driven out and now it's coming back. Apostasy, restoration. And what caused the apostasy? The apostate himself, the persecutor of the church, the whore of Babylon. Remember, what are they trying to do? Build Zion. And what are they up against? Babylon. They are trying to be the faithful bride of Christ. But what are they up against? The whore that makes all nations drink the cup. And if you go back to Revelation, what's the cup full of? The cup of her fornication. Unfaithful. Infidelity. Outside the covenant connection with Christ. 
So the saints are seeing themselves here. Verse 4, behold, in the last days, even now, uh, so these are the latter days and the latter day saints, even now, while the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word, and the blade is springing up and is yet tender. Oh, this is starting to sound like, like stony ground. Okay, the, the blade is springing up. Now, there's not much depth of earth. We've got some rototilling to do. Okay, we've got to do all the things that Jacob 5 tells us to do, the dig and to dung and to, to nourish the seed and everything else. It's yet tender. The church is just barely tiptoed out of the wilderness and is trying to get her bearings in this changed field. So what do we do? We nourish. We nurture. We protect the plant. Now, verse 5 We've got some time constraints that we're up against. Okay? They, these are the last days, even now. The Lord is beginning to bring forth his word, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Verse 5, Behold, verily I say unto you, the angels are crying unto the Lord day and night, who are ready and waiting to be sent forth to reap down the fields. We caught that hint back in section 77, remember? when they had all these questions about the book of Revelation, specifically about the four angels that were being sent forth to destroy. What's up with this destroying angels? And then what was that with that other angel that was kind of reining them in saying, no, no, don't go and, and hurt the world until we've had time to seal the servants of God in their forehead. So there is this, this kind of, there's one mighty and strong for you that's holding back the destroying angels saying, oh, careful. The blade is yet tender. We've got some work to do to strengthen it for all that it will have to face before harvest time. Oh, we saw that back in section 38 also, which again was the revelation that starts laying out the need of consecration. In that section, it described the wickedness of their day and said, which causeth silence to reign and all eternity is pained and the angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned and behold, the enemy is combined. You get a sense from that verse, these angels ready and waiting, having to be reined in? Well, you see the same thing here. Crying unto the Lord, day and night, is it time? No wonder the Lord is hastening his work. No wonder he's trying to cut it short in righteousness. And why prolonging it all the while? Because we keep procrastinating the day of our repentance. There are still stones to be hoed up and gathered out. There are still weeds to be pulled and plants tender blades yet to be nourished. But the Lord can't wait for harvest forever. In fact, in 1894, the Salt Lake Temple had just barely been finished the year before. President Wilford Woodruff, who dedicated it, was there with temple workers and he, he gave an incredible prophecy having to do with these concepts that we're reading about here. He said, God has held the angels of destruction for many years, lest they should reap down the wheat with the tares. That goes back to the original parable in the Matthew version, where the, once the servants wake up and see what's been done, they're like, we got to go out and weed. And, and the Lord of the, of, the, of the field says, no, no, you can't do that. You have to wait because you're not going to be able to tell the difference between wheat and tares until harvest time. We're going to see that repeated in section 86 as Joseph is wrestling with this same text. So thus you see the Lord, or in the book of Revelation, this other angel holding back the destroying angels, not, not time yet. Give the Israelites time to, to slay the, the lamb without blemish. 
give them time to put its blood upon their doorposts so that the destroying angels can pass over them and save their firstborn thanks to the sacrifice of the firstborn son of God. I know the angels are ready. The saints aren't quite yet. So give them time. But back to President Woodruff. God has held the angels of destruction for many years, lest they should reap down the wheat with the tares. But I want to tell you now, and this is 1894, that those angels have left the portals of heaven and they stand over this people and this nation now and are hovering over the earth waiting to pour out the judgments. And from this very day they shall be poured out. Calamities and troubles are increasing in the earth and there is a meaning to these things. Remember this and reflect upon these matters. If you do your duty and I do my duty, we'll have protection and shall pass through the afflictions in peace and in safety. That is, if we bear the ark instead of trying to steady it, right? He then said, read the scriptures and the revelations, just like we're doing today. They will tell you about all these things. And then this amazing statement, great changes are at our doors. The next 20 years will see mighty changes among the nations of the earth. Ah, talk about specific prophecy. 20 years? Given in 1894, well, 20 years later was 1914, as World War I saw the, the earth in commotion and conflict. Turmoil that hasn't left us ever since. We'll see more of that in the next Revelation, in section 87. But here, back in 86, the thought of the wheat and the tares holding back those angels for now to give both wheat time to strengthen and the servant's time to be able to discern between the wheat and the tares that are growing together in the field. That's what verse 6 and 7 describe. Verse 6, But the Lord saith unto them, Pluck not up the tares while the blade is yet tender, for verily your faith is weak, lest you destroy the wheat also. Therefore, verse 7, Let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. Now we'll get to the rest of verse 7 in a moment because that's got a really important twist compared to the, the New Testament original. But what we have in verse 6 and the first half of verse 7 is this need for patience on our part and on the destroying angels' part, okay? Don't go tearing in there and pulling out weeds left and right because you're going to end up destroying the wheat along with it. You see, those blades of wheat are yet tender, or as it says in, in the, within those parentheses, it, your faith is weak, and I'm worried that you'll end up destroying the wheat in your zeal to, to destroy the tares. Now, this, this ought to sound a little odd to us, honestly. Now, it did to the apostles. And they're like, wait, wait, how does this work? The issue here is I just want to get rid of every bad thing, uproot the bad habits. And I'm not saying, oh, just let the bad habits stay alongside you. Okay, no, repent of those. We're talking about children of the kingdom. We're talking about people, not just good habits and bad habits within each of us. And if we're so overzealous to start ripping out people and destroying relationships as we try to hold to, to the 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 standards of God. I'm not trying to, to lower God's standards, but I am trying to hold out hope for our relationships that we can maintain them. Again, I'm, I'm struck by that phrase, your faith is weak. Well, faith in what? And if my faith is so weak, 
wouldn't you want to get rid of the tares as quickly as possible so that my faith can kind of grow on its own? Well, yes and no. On the no side, there's something about opposition that gives us the opportunity to grow in strength. There's something about the, the possibility of doubt that allows faith to actually flourish because faith is required. Without doubt, then all it would be is just perfect knowledge and I didn't even have to flex the muscles of faith. I just knew. No, there's, there's going to be tears out there. There are going to be attacks on your faith. There's going to be opposition. I've often said to my students that when it comes to this court case between faith and doubt, there is just enough evidence for the defense to confirm your faith. But there is just enough evidence for the prosecution to require your faith. In other words, doubt does have a leg to stand on, which gives the leg of faith all the more chance to build its own strength. Right now, your faith is weak, and I worry about that. So let me allow the opposition to exist all around you so that you can have opportunities to build those muscles and fortify that faith. And specifically, faith in what? A couple of possibilities. One is your faith in the Lord weak. Your faith that he knows what he's doing. Is that why you're trying to steady the heart yourself? Uh, your faith that, that things will turn out okay and that my tender plant can actually grow into a mighty tree of life. But I also wonder, is your faith weak in other people's ability to change and in the Savior's ability to help them make those changes? Way back in section 61 when the Lord said, I am able to make you holy, do you really believe that? Because if your faith is weak in the Lord's ability to make you holy, then chances are you think you are the tares here instead of the wheat. And if your, if your faith in the Lord's ability to make someone else holy, if that faith is weak in you, then chances are you have already turned your back on the tares that surround you because they're never going to change. You see, here's the, this is where the parable breaks down. And every analogy always does. It's not a perfect parallel. This is exactly how things are. Because in, in reality, tares never change into wheat. In fact, the closer you get to harvest, the more obvious it becomes that the tares really are tares and always have been and always will be. That's another reason they're told to wait, don't, because you, you can't even discern it yet. It's only, the interesting thing about wheat and tares uh, is that the closer you get to harvest time, they've been growing up together and it's really hard to tell the difference, but by the time it's harvest, ah, now finally I can discern, I can differentiate between wheat and tares. I see the differences between them. Up until this point, it was really difficult to tell. Well, in the real world, just wait till harvest so you can discern the difference. But wheat is wheat, and tares are tares, and that's just the way it is. It's the inherent character of the plants themselves, and nothing will change that. The only thing that time will do is allow you to tell the difference more clearly. But that's where the parable is different from the real world. Because in, in spiritual things, tares turn into wheat all the time. If we have faith in Christ's atonement, that is. If we have faith in Christ's ability to make us and them holy. Do you know anyone that you know at some point in life was a tear? Probably would have admitted it or even proclaimed it themselves. Maybe that someone is you. But are they wheat now? 
And are they becoming wheatier and wheatier, brighter and brighter unto the perfect day? It's amazing to see what the Lord of the, of the field can do with all of his digging and dunging. Wild olive branches, graft them in, scatter them abroad. All that he does, they can bring forth good fruit, meat for the Father's kingdom. We just have to have faith in that. But if our faith is weak, and we come roaring into the fields to pluck out all of those nasty tares out there, you, you destroyed their opportunity to change. Because so many of those tares were simply wheat that hadn't recognized themselves yet. And the Lord in his patience, in his own faith in them, and faith in his own ability to coax the covenant out of them, yeah, just give them time. People can change. And most miraculously of all, they do. Otherwise, all of our preparatory work out in the field doesn't mean much. So let both the wheat and the tares grow together. Wait for harvest. There is still time to dig and dung. And then the Lord gives this twist at the end of verse 7. You see, in the Matthew original, the order goes like this. They planted wheat. The enemy comes and plant and sows the tares. They begin growing. The, the, the zealous servants are ready to go weed the field. And the Lord says, no, 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 not yet, not yet. You can't even tell the difference. Give them time. And then once harvest arrives, then he says, go for it. Go into the fields and begin pulling out the tares so that all we have left is wheat to be gathered. Well, that's, this is the difference here. Because according to verse 7, the order is reversed. He says, once they've grown up into the harvest, once it's fully ripe, then ye shall first gather out the wheat from among the tares. And after the gathering of the wheat, behold, and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remaineth to be burned. So like I said, the order is reversed. Now we might look at that and say, well, is that a difference without a difference? I mean, does it really matter? We're talking about separating wheat from tares. So who really cares what happens first? But the, when the Lord corrects this, I think he's telling us something about what we're up against and the powers of darkness and the need to cleave unto light. I mean, if you think about your own garden, for example, or your own lawn, uh, which, where's the center of gravity between wheat and tares or between grass and weeds? Um, my front yard, for example, right now, is, is, it's looking pretty good. Uh, there are some spots that we need to do some weeding. And so for the most part, we just mow the lawn, but there's some little spots that we're going to need to pull out some weeds. Now, the backyard is a nightmare, and it's, it's the opposite. Uh, if I look down from the balcony and see the, the, the backyard, it, it looks like a weed field. It reminds me of my, my neighbors in Tennessee as I was trying to battle the weeds in, in, the, the, you know, in my lawn, and they just, they're you know, local Tennesseans, they're like, hey, if it's green, it's green. So I don't even worry about the weeds. It looks a lot like the rest of the grass. So as long as you keep it mowed, it's fine. It's green, it's green. Well, as I look at my back now, it's mostly weeds. And so weeding, I mean, honestly, there's part of me that thinks, let's just rototill the whole thing and start over from scratch. It's like it has passed the point of no return. Maybe I can go through and go, ooh, I saw some grass. Maybe I can bring that out and save it for the next planting. And that seems to be the hint that we're seeing in verse 7. See, if the field is generally good, then it's easier to just pull out the weeds. But if the field has become generally bad, 
if darkness reigneth and there are none that doeth good, we saw that warned about in prior revelations, then it's a matter of looking across this, this sea of darkness and looking for the pinpoints of light. It's seeing not the wheat field, but unfortunately the tare field and trying to identify where is the wheat that somehow has remained faithful despite the odds. Let us gather them out. As Jeremiah said, one of a city and two of a family and bring them to Zion. I mean, that's what we're up against as the world seems to be continually getting worse and worse. I mean, the persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, Babylon, as we saw in verse 3, is having a field day. And with secularization on the rise, no wonder faith takes a hit. And, and churches, not just ours, can kind of feel what, what's happening with people. I've always been amazed at what Nephi said in his visions of our day from 1 Nephi 14. And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon many waters. We're seeing similar language from here. Nevertheless, so that was the bad news. Here's the good news. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth. So the wheat seems to be everywhere the tares are. But the tares have been outnumbering them, growing in strength, leaving the church of the Lamb relatively few compared to what it's up against. Now Nephi goes on, repeating himself first, their dominions, the church of the Lamb, upon the face of the earth were small because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. But then the good news. It came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb, and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. In your circumstance, wherever you happen to find yourself in the world, if you feel surrounded by tares that are choking out your spirituality, Understand what you're up against. Realize that these are the last days and an enemy hath done this. That's what the Lord of the, the harvest said to the, the servants in, in the Matthew version. But also know that you can rely upon the power of God being poured out upon you in great glory. Not just to protect you from the tares that surround you, but also to give you the power to influence those tares so that they can become wheat just like you. Have faith in that. Have faith in them. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in the Lord. Don't let it be weak. Strengthen that so as harvest time approaches, you are different and you are making a difference. It's one of the reasons we were scattered abroad to begin with. Allegory of the olive tree, take these good branches and scatter them elsewhere in hopes that they can make a difference. And then when we begin to gather them back in, they can bring others with them. There's a purpose in the scattering, just like there is a promise in the gathering. And to go out, make a difference wherever you happen to be, and then as the Lord hits his tuning fork, like we learned last week, and yours begins to resonate, other people around you see the difference. You let your light so shine before men, they see your good works, they glorify their Father in heaven. They become a little more weighty. They are gathered out along with you. You see, that's why the Lord is gathering out the wheat. 
That's what we're trying to accomplish in our day. As President Nelson keeps reminding us that the most important work we can be involved in is the gathering of Israel. You see the reversal there? It's not just, oh, everything's kind of going well and there's a couple of bad eggs uh, that we just need to pull out. Okay, Some, a little bit of weeding to do. No, it's, there's a, we're up against a lot. Okay, Our numbers are few compared to the world that is out there. And so gather out the righteous. Find them. Hit your tuning fork. Notice those who respond to the light of Christ. Hearken to the voice of the Spirit. Come unto the Father who then introduces them to the covenant, which was renewed for our sake and for the sake of the entire world. Gather them in. As once we have been gathered out and gathered into the garners of God, what is left? Well, then the tares are bound in bundles and the field is burned. That's also what happens at the end of the allegory of the olive tree. The earth is cleansed by fire. It is renewed and receives its paradisiacal glory. It becomes home to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and ultimately the celestial kingdom of God. And the righteous had been gathered out and gathered up prior to that time of, of burning and cleansing. It actually makes me wonder if the field's just going to be burned anyway, why would the tares need to be bound in bundles? And as I ponder that, I, it's always amazing to me to watch people who, who accuse the righteous of being cookie cutters, of being conformists. Uh, but, and just do your own thing and be your own person. And in their zeal to be non-conformists, they typically end up conforming to one another. It's the irony. And, and yes, there's a bunch of different bundles out there. But it's like we're all going to gather around this particular sin or this particular lifestyle or this particular ideology. It is fascinating to watch tares bundle themselves into these groups. They rejected the bundling that goes on in the kingdom of God. Gathered together with one heart and one mind. They, they probably thought they were afraid of losing their identity or their individuality. And yet, sadly they end up losing their identity or individuality in a bundle that they were never meant to be bundled in. Again, no wonder we need to stay with them, that we need to be in the world while remaining, while refusing to be of the world. Don't, pl don't pluck them out yet. Don't gather them too early. Let them be the leaven that leavens the lump. Make a difference in the world wherever you happen to be. Change the tares around you into wheat. Have faith that the Lord can do that in them. And faith that he can use you to do it. And then come to Zion and bring with you as many as you possibly can. How great shall be your joy with them in the garners of our Father. Therefore, the Lord says in verse 8, and what a great way to begin this. We've just learned the parable. We've learned its, its significance, its meaning. We've seen, understood it historically about apostasy and now restoration. We see ourselves in it as far as the gathering of Israel is concerned. And therefore, verse 8, thus saith the Lord unto you, you wheat. Yes, I've got my eye on you. You with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers, and passed down for the restoration of my people. Verse 9, ye are lawful heirs, according to the flesh. You have been hid from the world with Christ in God. I love that concept. Hid from the world? 
that we're in the world, but not of it. We've been hid from its, it's just, the Lord is protecting us. He knows our blade is tender. He knows our faith is weak. He's hiding us from the world's influences, but hopefully we're not hiding ourselves from the influence we could be on the world. Influence does need to flow, but it should only flow one way. That's what I love about the Jaredite barges, right? You can't survive with just the air inside you, and so you need these holes. But air comes in, so does water, and so you have to be discerning. You have to be careful. Open yourself to the air from without, but not to the water. Don't let that in, because it will sink your vessel. Be hidden from the world's negative influences but do not hide your positive influence from a world that desperately needs you. You are the lawful heirs. You are of the lineage of your fathers, better yet of your father in heaven. He has given you his name, his power, his authority, his priesthood. So go and make a difference. That's why he's restoring all these things. That's why he's restoring you to a right, right relationship with him. That's why you're still here and that harvest time hasn't happened yet. That's what he ends with in verse 10. Therefore, your life and the priesthood have remained. The priesthood, that authority, your life, that influence. And it must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. They all put their eggs in the restoration's basket. They were all banking on our day, finally being able to pull it off that the Lord would hide us from the world so that we could then make a difference in the world. Our priesthood remains, our life remains, and God is keeping us here, despite all the wickedness around us, until harvest is fully ripe and people have had time to change, that we have had time to grow and strengthen our faith. That's what the prophets were banking on. No wonder he says at the end, verse 11, therefore, so because of all that, Blessed are ye, if ye continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood a Savior unto my people Israel. The Lord hath said it. Amen. You see what the Lord is getting at through all of this? We are part of this parable. Part of the restoration, the church has come out of the wilderness. The plant is growing up in God, and it's our time to shine. We're supposed to be lights unto the Gentiles. With priesthood, authority, and power, we can be saviors of God's people. Saviors on Mount Zion, as Obadiah says. We can be an influence in the world if we'll just let our light shine. We can make a difference if we'll just choose to be different and refuse to follow the ways of the world. I've often uh, posed this question to my students. I'll read a quote and tell them, oh, this comes from a member of the First Presidency. Please let me know your guess as to which one it is. Here's the statement. We see men, and we could add women, following the ways of the world just as much as though they made no pretensions to being Latter-day Saints. Hundreds of people who are called Latter-day Saints, you couldn't distinguish from the world. They have the same desires, the same feelings, the same aspirations, the same passions as the rest of the world. Is this how God wants us to be? No. He wants us to have new hearts, new desires. He wants us to be a changed people when we embrace his gospel and to be animated by entirely new motives and have a faith that will lay hold of the promises of God. 
In other words, he wants us to be different. I let the wheat and the tares grow up together so the tares could change into wheat, not so the wheat could change into tares. Please, I've called you out of the world, even as I leave you in it. I've hidden, from, I've hidden you from the world, even as I've told you not to, to hide your light from them. Let your influence pass in their direction. Please be careful about letting their influence pass to yours. And I'm not talking people of other religions. I'm talking about Babylon. I'm talking about all those synonyms back in verse 3. Persecutor, apostate, whore, Babylon, Satan. Real tares. Not just different varieties of, of good wheat. Know what you're up against. And know who we need to, to influence. But I will say this. When I, when I ask my, those students, so which member of the First Presidency is it? They can guess any of the three. And I'll usually say, oh, yeah, that sounds a lot like that, that person. But no, not them. And so they go to another, ah, good guess. No, not that one. So then it's like, oh, well, it must be that one because there's only three. And I said, well, mm, there's been a lot over time. And the person who actually said this one was George Q. Cannon, First Presidency in 1899. And they're like, what? That You cheated. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. I did. I'm sorry. But the point I was trying to make is that this is a very old problem. I don't know what the saints were doing wrong in 1899. I know some of the things that we're struggling with in 2021. But in either period, the challenge is the same. Are we being different so that we can make a difference? So shine. Be a light to the Gentiles. Rejoice. Continue in God's goodness so that people are actually drawn to the difference within you. Be a savior, lowercase s, by choosing to follow the capital S savior of the world. Harvest time is approaching, and we've got a lot of gathering to do before then. Now, section 87 is our last revelation to study this week, and it is a fascinating one. It is a revelation and prophecy on war, which prepares us for next week, which is this olive leaf, the Lord's message of peace in section 88. I'm so grateful that there's a juxtaposition between those two. We've been talking about discerning and see the difference between the faithful and the apostates, between ark steadiers and ark carriers, the difference between wheat and tares and so on. Well, we're going to see a difference between war and peace in the, the end of this week's lesson and next week's lesson. And as we already studied back in section 45, in a world of war, it is only Zion that will become a place and a people of peace. And so which direction are you headed in? Babylon or Zion? That's what we're up against. And so war or peace, the choice is ours. And the choice is theirs as we're helping them understand it. Now, if you look at the date on this, this was received on Christmas Day of 1832. Odd time to be thinking of war. Then again, was it? If their minds were drawn to the birth of the Prince of Peace? You see, more than just Christmas, there was a lot going on at the end of 1832 as far as American history was concerned. Uh, the, the government, the U.S. government, had raised some tariffs in hopes of protecting the commercial interests of the northern states, but that went against the agricultural and economic interests of the southern states. And so the South, particularly South Carolina, was up in arms almost literally, 
ready to fight the United States government over this tariff issue. It was all about states' rights then, saying that the federal government can't control us. And if we don't agree with a federal law, then we'll nullify it. It became known as the nullification crisis. And it threatened to bring the United States to its knees. Uh, a secession from the Union that we usually associate with the Civil War in the 1860s. Well, this is happening in the 1830s. And it looked like things were on the brink. That's probably what was on Joseph's mind when this revelation first came, beginning with verse 1. Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. Now, from our standpoint in history, we look back at this, and, and that screams civil war to us. And with subsequent verses, it's obvious that the Lord had the civil war in mind. But in 1832, the saints were probably thinking nullification crisis. Uh, in fact, I wonder if it was a crisis of faith when the nullification crisis was resolved amicably before it even really began. Uh, it, this was a problem right then, and then it went away. And President Andrew Jackson at the time was able to make some compromises on the tariffs to satisfy the North and the South, and whew, we, we escaped unscathed from that one. Back to our period of peace. And I wonder if some of the saints were like, huh, did Joseph have an off day? Because I could have sworn that this was all going to begin with what was happening then. Well, it was. But they're just starting to see some of the rumblings. Notice the S at the end of wars in verse 1. This is a revelation about wars, not just about the civil war. So don't confine yourself just to that. Because even after the first threats of nullification subsided, the underlying issues, which was states' rights versus national unity, and more importantly, the issue of slavery, which had never been fully dealt with in American history. What's going to come of all that? Well, wars will. And as a result of those wars, the death and misery of many souls, more than they could possibly imagine. Now, verse 2, the time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. And that's the key. We're not just talking, if this was just a prophecy on the Civil War, then it's like, well, it didn't become a global conflict. Essentially, it was confined to the United States. But what has come ever since? Again, the time will come. War will be poured out upon all nations. Verse 3, here's how it's going to start. Behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call upon other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called. Now we see a clear prophecy of the Civil War. It didn't begin in 1832 with the nullification crisis, but in 1861 it began with the firing on Fort Sumter, which was in South Carolina. So it did begin with the rebellion of South Carolina. It did involve the southern states dividing against the north. It did come to a point where the south did call upon Great Britain for assistance. I mean, it's all being fulfilled just as Joseph is saying here. In fact, if, if saints were wondering, like, did he get it right in 1832? By the 1860s, even non-members of the church were like, uh, he did get this right. There were even newspapers that were printed during the Civil War while the saints were safely off in Utah, uh, half a continent away from the conflict. 
And even some of these newspaper editors wondered on their pages, has there been a prophet among us? That Joe Smith guy that we all made fun of to the point of, of martyrdom in 1844, he was right. That's exactly what happened. But it even went beyond what they understood by way of fulfillment. Because keep reading. By the middle of three, we've seen the Civil War. The South against the North. The South reaches out to Great Britain. But if this comes to the point where it is eventually poured out upon all nations, we'll watch how it goes. Middle of three, they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And then war shall be poured out upon all nations. You see, in some ways it's unfortunate it's all just one verse because it seems like, oh yeah, that's just civil war. Well, the first half was clearly civil war, but from there we shift to, oh yeah, they're going to need, the, they're going to ask help from Great Britain. Ooh, from there, they, well, who's the they now? Are we starting to talk Great Britain as well as the South and the North, the United States and Great Britain? Are they calling upon other nations to defend themselves against other nations? Ooh, now we're thinking of global conflicts and world wars with all of these alliances that take place in the beginning of the 20th century, for example. Remember Wilfred Woodruff's prophecy, within the next 20 years, great changes will be made to the point that with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, it, that, that, world, that, that, that what could have been a regional conflict becomes a world war because this nation had agreed to support this nation, and this nation has agreed to support that one, and because this one's now in the fight, then this one has to go against this. You understand what happens? And World War I becomes a, a war to end all wars that unfortunately didn't end up ending them. And then there's World War II, where there's Axis and allies, where there really are nations coming together to fight against other nations and nations calling upon one another to defend themselves. It, no wonder it, these dominoes begin to fall, and ultimately war is poured out upon all nations. I mean, to me, when the trade towers were hit in September on September 11th of 2001, the verse of scripture that came so quickly to my mind was wars and rumors of wars being one of the signs of the times of the last days. And when you think about terrorism, that is affecting the world globally. I don't know if there's a better depiction of a rumor of war. Because war, as we've typically known it, you know the enemy, and there's the conflict, and this is what it's about, and we're going to marshal the forces and go at it. But a rumor of war? What's a rumor? It's like, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know where it's going. I don't know who started it or how to end it. It's just kind of out there. And terrorism? When it's not some kind of state-sponsored, like that's the country we're fighting, it's just these little cells of, of discontents that are trying to wreak havoc on the world around them. And I don't know where it's coming from, and I don't know how do we end it. And talk about a rumor of war that's out there. And it is poured out upon all nations. Back to those destroying angels from the book of Revelation that the mighty and strong is, is holding back, that the Lord of the harvest is saying, no, don't, don't reap quite yet. Well, in John's vision, they're holding vials that they then pour out upon the earth, pouring out this destruction. The wars poured out upon all nations. Now, what are those wars about? Look at verse 4. 
And it shall come to pass after many days. So this is a long picture, okay? Slaves shall rise up against their masters who shall be marshaled and disciplined for war. And then, verse 5, it shall come to pass also that the remnants who are left of the land will marshal themselves and shall become exceedingly angry and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. This, again, is how it's pouring out upon all nations. It's like even the remnant, the survivors of this war, just are angry about what happened last time, and now they're going to fight the next one. I mean, does that sound like Germany from World War I to World War II? That there is a remnant, we lost that war, but now we're angry about reparations and what they've done against us, and we're going to get back. And I mean, it's this exceeding anger, this vexing of the nations with a sore vexation, and so much of it, and this is ironic, back in verse 4, arises out of the issues that come between slaves and masters. Now, again, that makes us think immediately of the Civil War in the United States, so much of which revolved around the slave issue. Later, in section 130, we'll see Joseph Smith repeat this kind of idea that there will be a conflict before the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's, I'm feeling like it's going to start in South Carolina and it's going to be over the slave issue. So that's still on Joseph's mind, even after some time has passed from this revelation and the, the resolution of the nullification crisis. But slaves and masters can go far beyond the, the chattel slavery that has been such a stain on American history and on the American conscience ever since. I mean, if you think of so much of the wars of the 20th century. If you think about the Cold War and you, th you see the upheaval of the Soviet Union, there's master-slave there, politically speaking. Well, how about economically speaking? When we think of the 1% the versus the 99% and the haves and the have-nots, and it's scary to think of where the world is going economically, and will it come to a point where slaves rise up against their so-called masters, who, unfortunately, are marshaled and disciplined for war. I mean, that to me is so fascinating, especially when you go back to what I hinted at earlier from section 38. I mean, in that one where consecration is being laid out and Joseph, the Lord tells the saints, you're so worried about wars in foreign nations, you don't even understand the hearts of men right here. Now, again, it's that thinking, oh, forget foreign wars. There's going to be a war right here on your doorstep. Civil wars 30 years away and get gear up for it. But even that, he's like, no, there are enemies in the secret chambers that are seeking your lives. And back in that lesson on 38, when we talked about consecration, if you think about the economic aspects of Babylon, this merchant city that, I mean, you read Book of Revelation about it, and it lists, it's like the Sears catalog uh, of Babylon, and it's like, oh, well, spices and, and, and fine wood and gold and silver and all these things. But keep reading the verse. And how does it end? What it's really after? The souls of men. It's like, whoa. I mean, you turn enough pages in the catalog of Babylon, and what they're really after is you. I want to enslave you to your consumerism. I want to chain you to desires of temporal things. I want to own you through the things you think you own. No wonder the Lord's great solution then and now was to consecrate, was to say to the Babylon all around us, I don't need what you're offering. I will not worship you in order to gain the kingdoms of the world. Jesus himself saw through that temptation. 
He's asking us to do the same. Those masters out there, master manipulators, consummate commercialists, they are marshaled and disciplined for war. They want to reduce you to your last cent. And at what point will slaves rise up against those masters? It actually makes me think also of the ultimate master who wants to enslave us to his will. No man can serve two masters. Well, there's, we're going to end up serving one of them. And one of them will claim us. The adversary will claim us as his slave. The Lord will claim us as his servant on the way to becoming his friend. But slaves rising up against their masters, I wonder if there's a, a, a chance for us to see a positive in verse 4 also of people so sick and tired of sin that they just long to break the chains that have bound them to addiction, to things that are, that are dragging them away from a hope for a free future. Along those lines, I, I long for the day when slaves rise up against that master. Now, yes, he is marshaled and disciplined for war. He has been since the war in heaven. And he tried to take away our agency then. He's trying to take away our agency now. Will we rise up? Will we say no more? Will we come unto Christ and plead with him to make us holy to the point of breaking the chains of hell? He is able to do that. But we have to place our faith in him. We have to come unto him to make that possible. That is a war worth fighting and worth winning. The Lord then says in verse 6, And thus, with the sword and by bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague and earthquake and the thunder of heaven and the fierce and vivid lightning also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of an almighty God until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. You see, this is far more than just war and far more than just the American Civil War. To go kind of this crescendo of catastrophes until it culminates in the coming of Christ, the consumption decreed that makes an, a full end of all nations, that's a good news, because the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Christ. The world will, will the, the slate will be swept clean to make way for the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The mighty and strong one will come and set not just the house of God in order, but the world itself, bowing before the Prince of Peace. Lion and lamb lying down together, and a little child shall lead them. The Lord will do anything he can to reduce us to that level of childlike submission and trust in him. War, sword, bloodshed, but famine, plague, earthquake, thunder, lightning, these are the signs of the times. You remember when we went back in section 43 and he lists all of these kinds of things that were meant to do what? To wake us up. How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens? And I try the voice of justice and judgment. That's what this is talking about. I tried the voice of mercy and of glory promised to you. I try everything to try to get tares to become like wheat, to try to get ark steadiers to become ark bearers instead. My wrath, my indignation, my chastening hand is simply 
extended to you in hopes that you will opt for my merciful hand instead. Both are still outstretched. Which side of me will you come unto? For those that opt for the justice and judgment, the wrath and indignation, then this will be poured out upon you. Why, verse 7, that the cry of the saints and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Look closely, it's not Lord of Sabbath, it's Lord of Sabaoth, which means the Lord of hosts. And hosts means armies. Yes, he's the Prince of Peace, but he's also the Lord of armies, the Lord of Sabaoth, and he avenges his saints. Right? I, the Lord, of you it is required to forgive all men, but I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. I'm taking it off your shoulders, but it is on mine. Vengeance will be mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, and I will answer judgment upon their heads in order to answer mercy upon yours. Your cries, your blood, eventually you'll have nothing to complain about because all the wrongs will be righted. It's actually fascinating. Back in 39, Chapter 8 was all the destruction of the wicked before the coming of Christ. But in chapter 9, this voice from heaven begins to explain to them why all of this has occurred. And over and over in that chapter, the Lord keeps saying, well, why was this city buried? And why was that city uh, fallen into the sea? And why did the inhabitants of that one blown away by the whirlwind? Why all of this? Same answer, verse after verse after verse. It was to hide their wickedness and abominations from before God's face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. It's the Lord's response to the cries of the faithful of how long, O Lord, will you allow us to suffer at the hands of those around us? How long will we have to be slaves in the hands of cruel masters? O Lord, come and set us free. And he will. He's promised. In the meantime, however, what are we to do? Verse 8 gives us the answer. Wherefore? So because of all that I've just explained about the wars being poured out upon all nations that will someday result in the death and min as misery of many souls. In the meantime, stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come, for behold, it cometh quickly, saith the Lord. Amen. Yes, the darkness will compass you around, but there will always be holy places to stand in. You understand why there is this border war we talked about in section 82? You understand why Zion has to strengthen its stakes and extend its borders? You understand why we have to increase in beauty and in holiness? You understand why President Nelson is, is building temples everywhere he possibly can so that the saints have holy places to stand in. I used to, we used to play tag all the time when I was a little kid. And in fact, we'd play all kinds of different tags. I never understood why my friends all, all of a sudden got really slow when we played kissing tag. Uh, that was an odd form of it, but I never lost. I never got caught by the girls. And I always wondered why my buddies were like, you're way faster than that. How come you always get caught? Now, looking back, I'm like, uh-huh, they, 
they were a little ahead of the curve. They understood it better than I did. Okay, well, but win or lose, at the time I learned the value of home base. And there's just something about sprinting away from the enemy and getting on base and just being able to breathe and relax a little. Because as long as you were on home base, you were fine. So what does the enemy do? He does all he can to coax you away from that safe space. He tries to move you, move you away from the holy place where he cannot reach. For so many of us, when we think of holy places, our minds immediately go to the temple. Well, for the past year or so, it's only our minds that have been able to go to the temple. We haven't been able to enter them physically. It's been interesting to talk to some people who have just driven to the temple and sat in the parking lot to be as close to it as they can. Or people, especially temple workers, who just review in their mind the language of the ordinances to remember. Hopefully each of us who are endowed remember those covenants every time we get dressed in the morning and put on the mantle of the covenants that we've made. But I do hope that with the closing of those holy places, we have opened ourselves to other ones that might even be closer to home. The opening of our scriptures. And now we're on holy ground, taking the shoes off our feet before this burning bush. Hopefully it's in our own homes as they have become sites for the sacrament. What an incredible experience we've had this past year as we've realized that we can make places holy not just to go to a place that has already been dedicated as sacred space. We just can't afford to retreat from that newly gained territory, back to the border war, okay? Satan is trying to encroach back into our home. Are we, are we surrendering it to him? Or are we standing in holy places and not being moved? That's the call for each of us. That's the invitation made by the Prince of Peace in a revelation on war, presented fittingly at a time when the world was celebrating his birth. You see, like I said at the beginning of this, this revelation, it might seem odd to talk about war on Christmas, but perhaps it takes a day like that. I mean, you, you hear of those, those Christmas truces in World War I, for example, when, when Soldiers on opposite sides of no man's land came up out of the trenches and crossed the field to exchange gifts or to sing hymns together. Incredible what, what Christmas does to extend that, that spirit, good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. Because unto us was born that day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, fast forward from this Christmas day of 1832 to a Christmas day of 1863. We are in the depths of the Civil War, as Joseph had prophesied of. And a man in the North had seen his son join the Union Army to go fight against the South, to do whatever he could to help slaves rise up against masters who were marshaled and disciplined for war and to help free them from that bondage. It was not just any old man in the North. He happened to be a poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And by this Christmas, his son had returned from war, but not victorious. He had returned wounded. 
And on that Christmas day, with all of the weight of the world on Longfellow's shoulders and seeing in the newspaper the lists of casualties and, and worrying that his son could have been numbered among them, he hears on that Christmas day the ringing of church bells. And a part of him revolts against that, thinking those, that sound has no business amidst the cacophony of war. But then he recognized the message that those bells were, were sending. That there will always be hope, even as war is poured out upon all nations, as long as there is faith in the Prince of Peace. He called his poem Christmas Bells. We call it, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And Longfellow's version includes a few verses that we don't sing on Christmas anymore. But they would have made perfect sense to his audience. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then the verses we're more familiar with. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then this beautiful reminder which we will see played out gloriously next week in section 88. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is the Lord's promise, ringing out with every bell that sounds on the day we celebrate his birth. That is his call to come and stand in holy places and then to extend the influence of those holy places until they cover the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The ultimate holy place is within the all-encompassing love of God, within his holy embrace, his hands. That's the garner. As Ammon said when his mission came to a close, Behold, the field was ripe, and blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle, and did reap with your might. Does that, doesn't that sound like so much of what we studied in the Doctrine and Covenants? Yea, all the day long did ye labor, and behold the number of your sheaves, and they shall be gathered into the garners, that they are not wasted. That's what the parable of the wheat and tares was all about. Yea, they shall not be beaten down by the storm at the last day. Yea, neither shall they be harrowed up by the whirlwinds, including the winds of war. But when the storm cometh, they shall be gathered together in their place, that the storm cannot penetrate to them. Yea, neither shall they be driven with fierce winds, whithersoever the enemy listeth to carry them. But behold, they are in the hands of the Lord of the harvest, and they are his, and he will raise them up at the last day. I've always thought of the temple as the ultimate garner of God, that holy place where the winds and whirlwinds cannot penetrate. The temple has thick walls, it's been said, to keep the world out. But as holy as the temple is, I think 
Ammon got it right at the end of that passage. We are his, and we stand in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. I know of no holier place than that, to feel of his love, of his protective embrace. That is the holiest of places, and from there we must never be moved.